welcome in. This is Downtown the Podcast. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here with you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. It's where we do our daily show, Downtown. Weekday afternoons from 4 until 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations around the state of Maine. And of course, with streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two very fine conversations for you this time around, one about music and writing, and one about the movies. In the second half of the podcast this week, we talk with uh, actress, author, film historian, and TCM contributor Sloane DeForest. We talk about uh, some of the women highlighted in her most recent book about the movies called Dynamic Dames. That's coming up a little bit later on. But we uh, get things going here on the podcast this week with uh, one of my favorite performers in music. Primarily seen as a country guy, but as he told us, he skirted some boundaries. Had the chance to even, uh, was encouraged to perhaps pursue a rock career by the record companies, but said that that was not that was not in him. He's a country guy from from West Texas, Del Rio, Texas, specifically. We're talking about Radney Foster, who first came to national prominence in the late 80s as part of a terrific duo, Foster and Lloyd, that racked up a bunch of hits on the country charts and much critical acclaim. After three albums, they decided to go their separate ways, and Radney Foster released uh, his debut album, which produced five hit singles. And uh, looks like he looked at the time like he was poised to have a huge solo career, but... Record company dynamics kind of got in the way. He still continued to make music and has had a lot of his songs recorded and become big hits for other people. But he's also branched out in the last couple of years of doing more than just music, but also working on some short fiction and all of it in his latest collection, which is uh, both a CD, an audio book, and a collection of short stories called For You to See the Stars. Really fun conversation with the talented Radney Foster. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, it's an honor. It's a pleasure. I, uh, it's not every day you get asked to be on Stephen King's radio station. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, the especially the fact that, you know, you guys want to talk both about songwriting, literary writing, and, and everything else in the world. Absolutely. Well, I've, I've been a fan of your work forever. And, uh, well, let's go back to the beginning. You uh, you began writing songs as a teenager. Was it, uh, was it Randy Goodrum who suggested you do that as a full-time thing? Actually, that is wrong on ah. Wikipedia, which is really funny because <laughs> Randy Randy was a is a really good friend and was a very influential um, in helping me um, stay in Nashville. But uh, I uh, and my mother disabused me. I always thought I started writing songs as a teenager, but my mother um, told me that that was a lie and that uh, she has copies of songs I wrote in Sunday school when I was seven eight years old. Wow! And uh, which I you know. Uh, so I was playing in a, in a, I went to the University of the South um, at Sewanee. It's a small liberal arts college on a mountain in Tennessee. Um, and uh, I was playing in a band up there that was sort of kind of nitty-gritty dirt bandition. And, and uh, a guy came up to our uh, to us after the show, and he said, you know, what band does those three songs? Because I know everything else y'all did, you know. And he said, my guitar player or somebody said, hey, you can't get them. Our singer wrote them. And he said, well, I don't know, you know, Jack squat about the, um, the music business, but I got a buddy who's a producer in Nashville. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And, uh, um, so he, uh, um, I wrote my number down on a matchbook, you know, this is back in ancient history days <laughs> and which was the, the payphone at the end of the hall in the dorm. And sure enough, two weeks later, I had a note tacked on my on my door that said, call Brown Bannister, and it had a Nashville area code on it. And I had just read in, like, Rolling Stone that, about this young producer who had won a Grammy for this brand-new ingenue Amy Grant and for a B.J. Thomas comeback record and all this kind of stuff. I was like, wait, wait a minute, that's a real guy. And so I played <laughs> four or five songs for... Um, for for uh, him, and he said hit for Brown, and he said, "Man, you got to have a serious talk with your mom and dad about you know doing this for a living." And so, you know, in typical fashion, I took a year off from college, and I 
I, uh, you know, and I waited tables and I worked as a camp counselor and did every odd job I could think of. And, um, and, but during that time I met Randy Goodrum and he, um, he was very kind to me and really dug my songs and, and helped me do, I would trade babysitting his kids for doing an acoustic <laughs> demo in his basement his studio. And, uh, um, and he really helped me, you know, find, I found one publisher because of him who wouldn't throw me out of his office, you know, <laughs> and I was <laughs> off to the races, you know, so I went back and finished college because, you know, a, a deal was a deal with my folks. Um, but I moved right back to Nashville after that. How'd you get together with Bill Lloyd? We both signed to Mary Tyler Moore's publishing company um, within a month of each other in, uh, in 1985. And uh, Mary Tyler Moore had, you know, and, and Grant Tinker had made, you know, with the MTM production house, had made so many gazillions in television that they uh, were looking for a way to, you know, uh, own publishing and do a whole another side of it in the entertainment industry. I mean, in the, in the music industry. And they were pretty successful for a little while. And they, uh, um, and there's a woman there who's named Meredith Stewart. And she just was one of those, you know, A&R folks who really knew how to pick and find young talent. And she signed, you know, eight young writers. And, and within two or three years, each of us had written, you know, a number one record. And, uh, and Bill and I uh, were sort of the young Turks. Um, I played acoustic guitar and sang, and he played electric guitar and sang, and, and uh, we would try to figure out how to, you know, do the demos to our songs, um, and uh, by just hiring a bass player and a drummer, and it would be less expensive. And you know, we'd we'd sing and all we'd sing all the parts and, and and put all the guitar and vocal stuff together, and that ended up becoming the band Foster and Lloyd, and how we got you know we ended up getting a, a song cut from that work by a group called Sweethearts of the Rodeo. Mm -hmm. And then um, RCA got interested and, uh, you know, they said, do you want to play a showcase? And we did. And we, we, we borrowed uh, Steve Earle's guitar player and uh, the bass player from Ricky Skaggs and uh, the steel player from Ricky Skaggs. And, and, uh, and we all rehearsed and, <laughs> you know, it was all lawyers, guns and money from there to, you know, <laughs> well, you guys, yeah, you guys had great success. Foster and Lloyd, uh, three albums at nine chart hits, and, and that, that certainly could have continued uh, that level of success, but uh, both of you wanted to go off and do your own thing. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, a, it was an odd time in Nashville. Um, we both, um, we were under this situation where um, uh, our, um, our, our, our A&R guys at RCA were great. I'm really convinced that we could do really well, but um, though there was a change in the regime as far as the radio programmer, you know, the, the, the radio side of things. And they were convinced that we were just too out there to get played, <laughs> just too hard to work, you know? And so there was talk of like, do we want to move over? Cause we'd had some pop success too and college rock success. So they were like, well, do you want to move to the New York office? And, uh, and I just felt like, you know, I couldn't go pop with a mouth full of firecrackers to quote, you know, <laughs> Buck Owen. I, like, I have a West Texas beat impediment. And so we kind of amicably split. Bill went to work as an A&R guy for um, a little while and then uh, on to start a band that was signed to Warner Brothers and produced Carl Perkins during that time period. He did a lot of cool things. I, um, I ended up uh, spending a year on the road opening for Mary Chapin Carpenter and for Vince Gill with just me and my guitar. And that really honed my craft sort of away from just a sound and, and towards, you know, more storytelling aspect of songwriting. Um, and, uh, it was a good, you know, it was a good trial by fire. And, uh, and so, uh, that ended up with me uh, getting signed to Arista Records. We're talking with Radney Foster here on Downtown. Well, that uh, turned into your first solo album in 1992. Uh, from my money, one of the absolute best albums of the last 30 years, regardless of genre. Uh, Del Rio, Texas, 1959. Every song on there is great. Five hits from the album. 
and every one of them is is a keeper. I, I, it's never left my heavy rotation. I think one of the best songs on the album is a fine line. I love the storytelling in that. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, that's a that's a guy you don't want to be. <laughs> he's, he's between a rock and a hard place. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, for the audience that hadn't heard it, um, uh, you know, man, can find it on Apple Music or or wherever it is that you listen these days. But um, it's about a guy who's uh, got a wife and two kids, and he's got a, a mistress that's pregnant. <laughs> and you know, he never really intended for this to to work out the way it is. And uh, but he's got soul searching to do, and basically, he's at that inflection point where you realize, like, somebody's getting hurt in this deal. You know, nobody gets out without a broken heart. And you also um, got uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter to lend uh, a little vocal work on "Nobody Wins." Oh yeah, that, and that was really born out of opening for her, becoming friends with her on the on the tour bus. Um, I mean, I had known her a lot before then. I had known her since we had, you know, since probably '86 or '7 when we were in Foster and Lloyd. Um, but that was kind of when I really became uh, friends with her, and and she taught me. It also changed. Uh, a, a big part of my guitar plan because she's just a master um, at alternate tunings. And, you know, I, I learned a couple from her and then, you know, went down the rabbit hole and started um, really studying all the things that David Crosby had done. And, um, and, and, you know, that really set me free. I, I, you know, there's not a, a, a record I've made in the last 20 years that, doesn't have some alternate tuning on at least one song. I did a couple more albums uh, for Arista, Labor of Love, a great album, a See What You Want to See, that had terrific collaborations with uh, Emmy Lou and, uh, and Darius Rucker. Did, did you get jerked around by the record company a little bit there? Um, in a way, um, the, the, the bizarre thing is, is that... Um, uh, see what you want to see. You know, I had, I had, you know, I'd had this opportunity to go pop and, and, uh, you know, with, with Bill and, and turned it down. And, and so, um, the labor of love record was less what, you know, Delia Texas Night to be Town was very well received at country radio and, and the labor of love record, not so much. And so I, um, uh, during that time I went through a divorce and I had a, uh, you know, I had a son, I went through a divorce I actually got remarried, all kinds of things, you know, happened. And so I've, you know, uh, a lot of big changes. And I w there was a hiatus between albums. And I, you know, started turning in these new songs. And my uh, label head, Tim Dubois, said, these songs are amazing, but they're not going to get played on country radio. And I said, well, this is what I'm going to do. And he said, well... I'll help you go anywhere in the world you want to go. I'll, I'll call Clive Davis to see if you want to go to Arista, New York, and, or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll find out where help you get this place. He said, but before you go anywhere else, we're starting this new division called Arista, Texas. And I was like, great. Mm. You know? And, uh, so I meet with the guys down there and they were ecstatic and fell in love with it. And, um, so, uh, the first single off of uh, See What You Want to See was I'm In with Aubrey Moore as a duet. And uh, um, and it was the most added record at um, at what they used to call AAA, which was kind of, you know, folky, alt-rock, country, Americana, right. all thrown in together. Right. And, uh, um, so, and they closed the label uh, that week. <laughs> <laughs> So um, what happened was that, you know, Clive Davis got in that argument. I don't know if you guys remember this, but he got in an argument with the parent company, BMG, and had to retire because they had this mandatory retirement age. Right, right. And then so they, so he left Arista, and then, of course, they turned around and gave him a gazillion dollars to start his own label, you know, on top of that. Um, but um, when the new guy came in, they were like, man, I don't know anything about this. Americana and red dirt and what you're doing with this air Texas thing, close it down. And so, uh, that was how I ended up, you know, sort of a free agent was just, you know, they closed the label when I had the, the most added single in America. <laughs> Man. Speaking of collaborations, your name came up a few weeks ago when we had one of my other favorite songwriters in the world on the show, Marshall Crenshaw. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
I've written a couple songs with Marshall, and, and especially back in the Foster and Lloyd days. And, uh, um, and he actually played on our second, uh, on our second album, Faster and Louder. As a songwriter, and you've had so many of your songs that be hits for others, folks like Keith Urban, uh, Sarah Evans, Kenley's, you mentioned Sweethearts of the Rodeo. Is that, is that like sending your child out into the world uh, wondering what it will be like uh, when you see it again? It, it is in a way, but it's also, it can be a very, very successful child. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they went to law school and can help you with your retirement. <laughs> um, <laughs> So there is it is a double-edged sword. Um, but I, I tell people all the time, people are like, okay, how in the world do you write songs for other people? And, you know, I started out as a staff songwriter, and there's a discipline to that of, like, you know, you kind of were pretty much expected to come up with at least a song a week. And, uh, and, and there were guys who were really great at knowing it's like Dolly Parton's going into the studio at the end of the month. we got to write a Dolly Parton song. <laughs> and I was like, and I was baffled by that. I couldn't do it. Um, but I, 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 I'm going to go back to Meredith Stewart, who was a great publisher, um, and, uh, and our person. And she finally told me, I think that all of that stuff is confusing you. I don't want you to ever think about it again. Just go write what you write and I'll help find a home for it. And so that became my philosophy. Just write a song I love and really care about. And, um, and, it will find a home either with me um, as an indie, as an indie artist, or um, through my publisher. They pitch it to somebody else, or and, and oftentimes a lot of people would hear my record who are on a major label, and it, you know, and I'd sold you know thirty thousand copies of it, and they were like, my three point five million fans, <laughs> they really don't, you know. <laughs> don't really know this guy's music so it's perfectly acceptable for me to just lift right off of that record <laughs> um which i was fine with you know it's like yes sir you go do your version however you would like to <laughs> well i really want to talk a, a lot about uh, the most recent project for you to see the stars it is it is so remarkable but but the story behind it is worth telling as well and it, it began with the scariest thing that can happen to a performer and that's losing your voice yeah and for a long time, um, I was, uh, I got pneumonia and laryngitis in the winter of, of, uh, 2015, 2016, you know, through that, you know, sort of December and January. And I had to cancel a six month tour. I was unable to speak for three months mm. and it wasn't like they just said, okay, if you'll just completely shut up for three months, um, and uh, then we'll, you know, then, and actually it was about two solid months of zero speaking. And then it was like, you can speak for 10 minutes and then you can you have to shut up for two hours, you know, and it's, and you still can't sing yet, you know. And uh, um, it, it was like, and I would go back week after week. I would go, each week you would go in and they'd say, no, you still can't speak. So you get a month in, you know, and you've, you've, sung all your life and at the end of a month you've gone four times to the doctor they've scoped your voice and they say you still can't talk and you still can't sing and that becomes a real mind crisis and so i was going crazy and just i wrote a note to my wife and said um babe i'm going to try to write a story a short story just to keep from going crazy you know, to give myself something creative to do. And, and she didn't answer me. She picked up the pen out of my hand and wrote down on the same piece of paper, you should because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning of my literary career, that right there. <laughs> and uh, I wrote a song, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I wrote a short story, which is the last one in the, in the book, which is really novella length. It's about 13,000 words, I think. Um, and... It was based on a song by the same name called Sycamore Creek. Mm. And, uh, um, so I, I, you know, my wife, I, I handed it to my wife and who was a journalist for many, many years and a magazine editor for many, many years. And, um, and she read it and said, congratulations, this is really good. And you need to keep writing this way once you, um, you know, once you get, get healed up 
you know, continue to write songs, but you need to continue to write short stories. And so I did, and, you know, a couple of them were inspired by songs, and then a couple of them I had written that were out of thin air. And I went, I could just write a song to go with those other two. Hey, wait a second. <laughs> I put out an album of songs and a short story to go with each song. And so that's what I did. And yes, it's a, it's a, both a book and a CD or an album collection, you know, download, whatever, however it is that you listen to music um, of uh, 10 songs and 10 short stories. Well, I'd listened to the, the album first and, and love the music as I always do with your stuff, but then went back and, and read the book and, and it's phenomenal. And you, the writing is so good. You, you wrote me in right away with the first story in the book about James Garrison Smallwood and his grandfather and, and did oh, yeah. such a, a beautiful job of, of making me visualize lands that I've never seen before. Oh, thank you so much. That is, that is kind. Um, I, uh, you know, I am, I was born and raised in West Texas, Del Rio, Texas, 1959 is, you know, the title of that record, but that is when and where I was born. And, you know, Del Rio is in one of those odd places in that, it, it was right on the Mexican border. I was literally, my house was a mile or so from Mexico. I could ride my bike to the bridge, you know. Um, the, uh, and yet you're, you know, the first, the, the nearest big city was San Antonio, but equidistant from there was the Big Bend country, you know, uh, Alpine and Marfa and, and that entire area. And of course, um, it's much cooler up there and, you know, you'd go camping there or you'd go up to the national park and often that was a, a, you know, first stop if we were on family vacations going up to, um, New Mexico and Colorado, you know, our first stop would be sort of in the, in the big bend area up in that park and in, uh, and in, in particular in Alpine and Marfa where it's cool. Um, and so I fell in love with that country and I knew I wanted to write something about that. Um, and I knew that I wanted um, a subject matter that dealt with death and reconciliation. And so I just, I came up with the granddad and the dad and sort of the, uh, I won't do the spoiler alert, but there's a, you know, there's a, it's a grandson, a father and a, uh, and a, and a father-in-law and, and the, the, the dad and the granddad have had a little uh conspiracy going on for a while. <laughs> it's beautiful. And I, I love, uh, I, I want to read a line because it just, uh, I, I dog-eared the page immediately. I was just so moved by this line uh, from It Ain't Done With Me. Real regrets haunt you at sunset when the light reminds you of a tenderness you can never get back. Man, that is that is just some beautiful writing. Oh, uh, thank you very, very much, man. Uh, that, that was, um, that was a really fun story to write because um, I knew I wanted to set my sights on something that I said, well, who has, I, I, you know, regret that you can't talk about. <laughs> and I know a couple of guys who are, um, you know, former military, but they were all special forces. Um, the two of them that I know. And, you know, that when they say, you know, I can't tell you before I'd have to kill you, they mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Everything they had done is classified, you know. And, and I'd had the song already written, uh, um, I'm done with the past, but it ain't done with me. And it's sort of a Waylon Jennings rocker um, about regret. And I just knew I wanted to put that song on the album. So I thought, well, who has, you know, what? Let's let's deal with the complications of things that, you know, got left untied and undone and or, or went badly, and you can't talk about it. Mm. And so I came up with the character, uh, and it, um, for the audience out there, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a reunion between a retired spy and uh, his daughter, and, uh, and it all takes place in one night in New Orleans. Um, we're, we're talking with Radney Foster. His book is called For You to See the Stars, and uh, so many great characters that you develop in these stories. I hope somewhere in the world there is a real Isabel Villarreal who can ask those important <laughs> questions of us. <laughs> she, uh, she is, 
purely out of my imagination, but she is probably an amalgamation of several women that I grew up with. So there you go. <laughs> uh, uh, a, a great piece of writing, too, uh, about a, a, a very scary dystopian future and another dragon to slay. And man, that song, when I connected the two, I like the song already, but when I put those together, and you wrote this, what, four years ago? I wrote it right before the election. Um, I wrote uh, I wrote the song, and uh, in uh, in I want to say August of 2016, and I uh, I put it out uh, just acoustically. And my wife found a, a ton of uh, footage from the 1930s and 40s um, concerning fascism. And uh, and 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 authoritarianism as well. I mean, there's some there's some both um, left and right authoritarian um, and civil war issues, Spanish Civil War. Um, and we put it out there because I really feared at the time that you know we were, you know, flirting with, um, you know, you know, very very authoritarian thought processes and. Uh, um, unfortunate, and I and I said, and I was like, you know, democracy is a fragile thing, and and you know, what happens if the United States breaks up? You know, what does this, what what does that entail? What the hell does that look like? You know, and uh, and it's uh, that story is about a uh, a guy who uh, they call the old man, and uh, he's uh, Sergeant Mota. And, and he, he basically is stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the interesting thing about him as a character is that he is having to fight in the Army to try to figure out how to not only maintain his citizenship, but to get full citizenship instead, you know, um, for his kids someday. And, uh, and the citizenship in that country, which is one of the countries that's born out of the United States, is a two-tiered system. Um, there's first class citizens and then there's everybody else. Um, and so I actually just took, um, uh, laws that are on the books in countries across the world concerning immigration and citizenship. And, um, and, but how can you align these in the most horrific way possible? <laughs> And so I did. So he is stuck, and uh, and he is stuck at the siege of Denver. And I'll leave it at that, so that people can figure out when they read it what they want to what they want to take from it. Well, it it takes place uh, several years in the future, but boy, it seems eerily prescient. And uh, on yeah. the on the one hand, great job, you nailed it. On the other hand, now I'm even more scared. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Um, I, I, I had, I've had several fans go, did you know you're being prophetic when you wrote, um, all that I require? And I said, no, frankly, I just thought it was a warning tale and that way we would, you know, get, get past it, you know? And, uh, but apparently, uh, we are still in the thick and throes of, of, uh, questioning the, both the writ of our constitution and the, um, traditions of this thing we call the democratic republic now lest anybody think the the album and the stories are uh, are all heavy no there are some wonderful moments and uh, i frankly having done all three i think the best way to approach this collection is to listen to the audiobook and and hear oh, wow. you read it because it's great and i was listening in my car and laughing out loud as a radio guy and a rock and roll guy too Listening to the Night Demon took me back to that well, that little Panasonic transistor I had as a kid. Yeah, yeah, that I love that kid. He's he's a stinker. I mean, but I love him <laughs> to death. And he's uh, um, he is a, a little like me. You know, obviously, I grew up. Um, I actually grew up. You know, Del Rio had one of the border blasters, one of the really big ones. And I am too young to remember Wolfman Jack, um, who was on the air from. Uh, uh, 1960 to 62, 60, 61 to 62 for three years. And, uh, there in Del Rio and you could hear him. And I mean, you know, in, in Greenland or in the fillings in your teeth, I mean, you know, <laughs> to, if they had five RCA, um, 50,000 watt, um, 
transmitters and a 110-foot stick, and they'd crank them as hard as they would go at night, and uh, you know, so that they could be heard. And it became, you know, uh, one of the first places you, you know, they'd have preachers, they'd have rock and roll. The, the Carter family lived during World War II um, in Del Rio, right? You know, and broadcast twice a day on the radio, and so, you know. That was still going on to a certain extent, and the whole sort of progressive country, outlaw country thing was happening in the early 70s. And there was a guy named Paul Callinger, who's now in the DJ Hall of Fame, and he was on there, and, and he would uh, he'd spin those you know, records, and he didn't care what whether Nashville thought it was country or not, if it would keep a trucker awake, he, you know, so you, <laughs> he was fine with it. You know I mean? He, he, you'd hear Creedence Clearwater Revival one minute, and then you'd hear, you know, Dave Dudley, and then you'd hear Willie Nelson, and then you'd hear Patsy Cline, and then you'd hear Ray Price, and then you'd hear the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. I mean, it's, it was all over the map, and it had a massive influence on my music, and I thought, i I, I got to write something about that. Well, that's so, a wonderful story, and again, it gives me an even greater appreciation for the wanderer. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is so it's such a wonderful package. Uh, the, the way to do it is to experience like I said all three uh, get the collection of the book, uh, the audio book which is fabulous and the CD of, of for you to see the stars and you're going to love it. It is it is beautiful writing. It is as always uh, tremendous music. Uh, Randy, I've loved your work for so long, and it's it's great to have a chance finally to talk with you after all these years. Uh, th- thanks so much. Hey, by the way, let me tell everybody, I mean, I know you can get it off of Amazon or some other place like that, but if you go to RadneyFoster.com, it comes autographed. So, you know, you can get the book, the CD, or the audio book, and I, I, I sign every one that goes out, you know, uh, along with a lot of other stuff that we have in there. And, and, and this time when, you know, I can't tour and make any uh, of my living that way, it, it sure does help if somebody wants to, you know, it's never too early to think about Christmas. It's right around the corner. Darn right. Get it from the source. <laughs> Always the best way to do it. Randy, thanks so much. It's been a blast. Oh, the pleasure is all mine, man. Thanks so much. And uh, and I have to say also, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, I found it a tremendous thrill when Stephen uh, name-checked me and Mr. Mercedes. <laughs> and uh, I got I got a real thrill out of that, and and that's a great book. But um, if you get a chance to pass along to him, I I cannot express how much um, this book was affected by uh, reading on writing. I mean, that's oh, that's, yeah. that's a that's a tour de force as far as you know how to and storytelling and 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 uh, paying attention to style and voice uh, and letting it be yourself. You know, uh, it really. It was a tremendous, tremendous help gotcha. when I first started writing. That's uh, great. I ought to be a textbook in, in schools. It's so good. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Randy, appreciate you making time for us today, and I uh, hope we can uh, get you back out on the road so people can see you in person, and hopefully we can, we can do this again sometime down the road. Oh, yeah, and thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Randy Foster here on Downtown. Very interesting guy. The short stories are, are so good. The music is great, and... And it's so interesting to hear the stories after you listen to the music and to see those characters develop as they can in, in fiction. And it gives you a new understanding of the songs. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle of understanding yeah. that is great to experience. And not everybody can do it. I mean, I, my thought was, gee, well, more, more songwriters ought to do that, but you have the talent to be able to do that. And writing lyrics to a song are not the same as writing fiction no two vastly different talents but he seems to have tapped into both of them yeah uh, it's a- excellent collection for you to see the stars visit his website uh, radneyfoster.com we'll take a break here our friends from uh, cross insurance will check in with us when we return we talk movies in particular some of the more talented women of the last 80 90 years in hollywood Film historian Sloan DeForest up next on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit Cross Insurance. 
CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Downtown, the podcast. Betty Davis, one of the many talented actresses, mentioned in a collection called Dynamic Dames by our next by our next guest on the podcast. She's an actress, film historian, and author. You see her often on Turner Classic Movies. Happy to be joined by Sloan DeForest here on Downtown. Hi, Rich. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to talk with you. You have uh, had such an interesting life. You've done so many different things, and and. Our great love for you, Sloan, uh, may also be due to the fact that you're related to a great radio pioneer. Yes, that's right. Lee DeForest, the father of radio, as as, as I'm sure you know, and hopefully some of your listeners know, was my relative. That is very, very cool. So how does one become a film historian, Sloan? I haven't the slightest idea. (laughs) (laughs) I sort of fell into it, frankly. I always watched Turner Classic Movies, and I loved classic movies. And um, then I moved to Los Angeles 12 years ago and in hopes of being – I was an actress and an aspiring screenwriter, and uh, I ended up somehow – realizing someone at some point realized that my knowledge of classic film and my ability to write about classic film was uh, was uh, valuable. So here I am. Well, it's wonderful, and you've written so well about it and have captured some uh, some great women of Hollywood and iconic roles as well uh, in Dynamic Dames. And boy, it starts off with a bang, too. When you get a forward by Julie Newmar, you know you're doing pretty well. That's what I thought. Catwoman herself. <laughs> I was really lucky to get that. She's amazing. She is a dynamic dame. So, yeah, that was a great way to start off the book, for sure. Well, let's talk about a few of the women that you highlight in this book. And, and her first section is called Pre-Code Bad Girls. And, and for anybody who, who doesn't know, can you give us a brief primer on the film code? Yes. The Hollywood production code had started in the... I guess in the late 20s, early 30s, but it wasn't really um, enforced until 1934. It was sort of a code that that uh, that all the filmmakers and and studios agreed to, like a self-censorship. You know, we won't have vulgar language, won't have nudity, sexual scenes. There's a certain list of things that we couldn't do. And um, so the films, the, the talking pictures made like between 31 and 34. Uh, that code clamped down so hard on them. So they're pretty fun. They're a little bit racy. Well, and, and one of them, and one of the great roles is Miss Barbara Stanwyck uh, playing Lily Powers in the great 1933 film Babyface. Can you, you talk a little bit about what makes her such a dynamic dame in this film especially? Yeah, one of my favorites. Barbara Stanwyck's an amazing actress uh, with an amazing career, but, but Babyface was, I think... Um, one of her earliest best roles. Uh, you know, she. <laughs> if people haven't seen the movie, you have to see it. She. You, it must be seen to be believed. It's just. It's, it's sort of in your face. Uh, she's a very sexy, very ambitious young woman. She's very poor. She grows up without, you know, a cent to her name. Her father dies. She has no one. She has nothing but her looks, and she uses them to basically sleep her way to the top and become a big success and become wealthy. Um, but the way she does it is somehow, and this is a testament to Barbara Stanwyck's acting, but it's somehow done in a way that doesn't make us hate her. We're almost rooting for her, uh, you know, to sleep her way to the top and, and, um, and not be punished for it. Well, and I love Barbara. Women often were punished, of course, in those days when they committed those kind of sins. I love Barbara Stanwyck and everything she does. This film is great. Uh, She is in my favorite and and arguably the greatest film noir of all time. Uh, She is so amazing in Double Indemnity. And much as I love Fred McMurray, yeah, I'm still kind of pulling for Phyllis in that one, too. (laughs) 
Even, right? <laughs> she, Stanwa could make you pull for her even when she was pretty nasty. So she was she was an incredible actress, and, and Babyface is a role that she actually co-created with Daryl Zanuck. I, I didn't realize that until I started researching the film, but she helped sort of write the character and shape the story herself, uncredited. Now, a lot of uh, modern-day film fans may not be familiar with the name, but... Uh, to an earlier generation, well, she was the it girl. Uh, Clara Bow is uh, quite a fascinating story. And this movie that you highlight, Man Trap, uh, certainly one of the most interesting in the early days of film. I agree. I wanted to bring attention to that to that movie. It's a little bit below the radar, but I think it's her first breakout performance as the It Girl. She wasn't called the It Girl then. That came the following year in 1927 when she starred in the movie It. But here we see the It Girl, you know, the, the first Clara Bow, uh, really sassy, uh, kind of um, self-empowered young flapper that she just owns the screen. She kind of dominates all the men in the movie. So that's a great one, too. And the common theme in these women that you talk about in the book is this idea of, uh, as you put it, being the architect of their own destiny. Exactly. That was a stipulation. I wanted to write a book about these these female characters who were the architects of their destiny, who were the heroes of their story. Not so much, you know, heroin is often applied to, to a woman lead, but I, I see these women more as heroes because they're not so much waiting around for a man to rescue them. They're leading their own story uh, in a way that's empowering, I think, for other women to see. We're talking with Sloane DeForest here on Downtown. Quite often, too, uh, women, I su- it happens to men as well, I suppose, but women who are uncategorically beautiful sometimes aren't given enough credit for their acting chops, and there are a number of them in this book, and particularly in your, your chapter uh, of real role models, whether it's Greta Garbo, Audrey Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, or uh, one of my favorite actresses of all time, Natalie Wood. Yes. Natalie Wood is one of mine as well, and I I welcomed the opportunity to shed a little light on her. Um, I also got to work on the uh, What Remains Behind documentary that was just released this year to HBO. And that was was another opportunity. Oh, thank you. Yes, I think it turned out well, and it was a little glimpse behind the scenes, more at her personality, because she's often called, you know, very vulnerable, very sensitive, which she was. But she also was a powerhouse uh, who was really in control of her career as one of the few top female stars of the 60s. Um, She had a lot going for her in the brains department and behind the scenes managing her career. So she was one who doesn't get the credit, I think, as well for being such a talented actress and being so powerful because of her beauty. From your perspective, what made her so powerful in Gypsy Rose Lee up against a a pretty strong fellow actress as well in that one? Yeah, I think she held her ground with Rosalind Russell, who's another dynamic game in the book, as Hildy in His Girl Friday, of course, and Russell's great. But... um, but Natalie, she had the fire in her belly. She wanted to be a great actress. She took risks, uh, and she, you know, made herself vulnerable in these roles. And she was also playing the real Gypsy Rose Lee, I think. And the two got to meet while they were working on the movie, and I think um, she wanted to do justice to that because Gypsy Rose Lee was a fireball in her day, and she was a real groundbreaker. Um, so you've got three amazing women really, in that movie, one behind the scenes, the inspiration. And you mentioned Rosalind Russell and and His Girl Friday, which is just such a great film. And I I can't imagine how many women through the years, and and we've known, we've talked to some here, who went into working in journalism, they were so inspired by the character of Hildy Johnson. I agree. She inspired me. I mean, I didn't go into a journalism career so much because of her, but just growing up watching the movie, what an inspiration. She's this career woman. She just, you know, she can sort of write circles around all the men in her office. And um, she's so funny. I mean, that's the thing that always gets me, you know, is the women who, because once a woman can really be funny and make you laugh, she can kind of get away with anything I find in the movies. And, and that's what Roz Russell does in his girl Friday. She gets, she steals the movie practically from Cary Grant. And that was quite a feat. 
uh, in your section on Big Bad Mamas, some fairly, well, let's just say complex moms uh, along the way in there. And it's with, starting with one of the great performances, I think, uh, of all time in film, Joan Crawford, just so powerful in Mildred Pierce. Yes, she was great. I mean, her only Oscar in a long career was for that movie, and I, I feel that she earned it. She really wanted that movie, too. That was her big comeback. She hadn't made a film in two years, and she waited and waited until she found the right story, and that was it. And Michael Curtiz, the director, didn't want her in the part, so she had to, to really scrap and... Um, argue and fight and beg and plead her way into the role and she just uh she nailed it she nailed it so she earned the oscar in that and then she's also got Anne blythe uh and mm. her daughter vita giving an amazing performance as well a lot of great women in that movie with eve arden too uh, Anne bancroft as mrs robinson in the graduate uh, some some brilliant moments it's a funny movie, but her character has so much depth. There, there's so much sadness in her portrayal, and it's such a well-rounded performance. I agree. It's really tragic. She's sort of a tragic character. Um, that's, but it's a multi. It's so multi-layered in the film that we're almost, as I talk about in the book, we're sort of encouraged to sort of see her as the antagonist, you know, or, or the bad guy in a way, and then. When you sort of step back and look at it and look at her, look at things from her perspective, um, there's more of a sadness in her that um, she's a little bit more of a victim, you know, and uh, I think that that's what makes the movie, you're right, it's hilarious, but it also has something deeper than just humor that you can keep revisiting and, and finding out, discovering more things about it as you watch it. When you talk about uh, actresses and, and women in Hollywood who took control of their destiny, uh, few have done it as well as Ida Lupino, uh, incredibly talented actress, and you write about her work uh, as Lily Stevens in Roadhouse, but then became uh, really a, a force as a director as well in her own production company. She did. She was literally the only actress to become a director in that whole era. We're talking about 40s, 50s, 60s Hollywood. She was the only one. She was the, the one single female member of the Directors Guild. And, you know, you got to really take your hat off to her because she she didn't have, I think, a lot of, uh, a lot of directors in those days. Well, they were most, they were all basically men and they had a sort of apprenticeship. They could come into a studio as an assistant director and work their way up. She didn't have that advantage. There were no film schools in those days. She just stepped on a set one day and said, I think I can do this. And so, so she's an inspiration to me as well. Uh, under Women of Mystery, you wrote about my favorite movie of all time and great performances all around. Grace Kelly as, as Lisa Fremont in Rear Window holding her own and then some with not just Jimmy Stewart, but a couple of great character actors in Wendell Corey and Thelma Ritter. You are speaking my language, Rich, because <laughs> that's one of my all-time favorite movies as well. Love Grace Kelly, love Lisa Fremont, and yeah, I agree. She holds her own in that movie. She she sort of is the one who really solves the mystery. She becomes something of the protagonist. She's not just the, the pretty blonde girlfriend. She's amazing to me. And I found it interesting that John Michael Hayes, the screenwriter, really based the character on her. Because the character in the short story that the film is based on, I mean, there is no character. There is no Lisa. So she was created from scratch based on Grace Kelly's act personality. So, you know, that's another point to make is a lot of these women that are just interpreted, I think we see them just as pretty faces in these movies, actually had a lot of sway and a lot of power behind the scenes about what went on on the screen. And the dialogue between between those two, uh, or between Jeff and Lisa is just so good and, and so ahead of its time, I feel, for a film made in 1954. Oh, I agree. It was very, I think that was Hitchcock. Well, John Michael Hayes, screenwriter, yes. He was amazing. I agree. It's a great script. It's a perfect script, really. 
but Hitchcock, I think, had you know this very dark sensibility about marriage, and that all comes through in this era of happily ever after. The fifties was all about you know the couple gets married in the end and they live happily ever after. Well, that couldn't have been more subverted in Rear Window. It, it does make it ahead of its time. And when you talk about Hitchcock, uh, we all know well, people who love film know that behind the scenes. His best sounding board was his wife. Oh, yes, Alma. She was a huge influence on his films. I mean, not only the editor, but as you said, the sounding board for his ideas and a contributor of ideas. So he definitely is one of the cases of a man who has a strong woman behind him. Let's talk about a couple of uh, more modern performances. And I don't know that anybody's ever taken hold of the screen and, and made it their own the way Angela Bassett did as Tina Turner and What's Love Got to Do With It? Agreed. She was great. It's kind of, uh, you know, I noticed when I was writing this book, which was in 2018, now it's been a couple of years, that um, her performance and that film had kind of fallen off the radar. So I was happy to be able to bring it back, you know, and remind people about it because um, it was amazing. She did a great job in that movie. A Tina Turner had an amazing life story to work with, but I, I agree that Angela Bassett brought it to life. And then a, a fairly recent performance from just a few years ago, Mad Max Fury Road, and my gosh, Charlize Theron, like you'd never seen her before at that point. Yes, she's another amazing contemporary actress who really goes out of her way to select strong and different and complex roles to play. She doesn't coast on her looks, especially in this movie. I mean, talk about not coasting on your looks. It was her idea to shave her head and, and have that black soot sort of look over her head. I mean, she couldn't be, you know, less the blonde bombshell that I think we were used to seeing. So she, and she started her own production company specifically, you know, tailored to find strong roles for women. So she's, it's, she's great that she exists these days. Well, if you haven't read it yet, check out Dynamic Dames. It is a wonderful tour of some of the great performances and, and talents in Hollywood history. Always look forward to seeing you when you're on TCM. Uh, it's been great talking with you today, Sloan. I hope we, maybe we can have you back as uh, we get uh, deeper into the fall and around Halloween and, and talk about one of your earlier books and take a look at science fiction. Oh, I'd love to. That would be so much fun. I'm always up for a sci-fi discussion. Fantastic. Sloan, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Rich. Film historian Sloan DeForest talking about some of those dynamic names in Hollywood history on the podcast this week. Or thanks to Sloan and the wonderful Radney Foster as well for joining us. Thanks to you. Let us know what you think. Leave a review. Shoot us a note. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Send cash. All right, you can't do it. Well, you could do it. We won't, we won't say no, but the other things certainly require very, very little commitment from you and take less time than it did us to put this all together. So help a couple of brothers out here and spread the word. <laughs> we appreciate you joining us. We remind you, Downtown the Podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. For Carrie Haskell, this is Rich Kimball, and we'll see you next time on Downtown.